A-L-T-C-O-M-I-C-S. Alt Comics. Okay, so we're calling it Steve Laffler, Life and Death in Oaxaca. Well, still alive so far, uh, thinking about earthquakes in Oaxaca and in Mexico City this week, and uh, hoping that everyone I know there is okay. Uh, definitely there have been some, some victims of the quake in Mexico City and in other parts of Oaxaca, Oaxaca City where I lived for nine years. Uh, everyone I know seems to be okay, so I'm happy for that. I'm sorry to hear about the devastation. Anyway, we've got to acknowledge what's going on down there as we start this. Uh, I'll just preface uh, the talk by saying that, yes indeed, uh, from the fall of 2007 to the fall of 2016, uh, my family and I, we uh, lived in the city of Oaxaca, Mexico, and um, naturally, uh, after living in a place for a long time, I was moved to do some comics, using Oaxaca as the backdrop, and the culture and people of Oaxaca as settings and characters and subject matter of some comics. Uh, I was in no hurry to do this when I moved there. Uh, you know, you don't want to necessarily jump in start doing comics about something that's brand new to you. You let it kind of settle in for a while. So uh, after we'd been there five years, I started a graphic novel set in Oaxaca, uh, originally called Death in Oaxaca. Now uh, the collection ultimately will be called, um, let's see, what was I gonna call it? Oh yeah, Death You're Plays. changing it. I don't know. <laughs> Death Plays a Mean Harmonica. Okay, anyway. I'll, I'll let, I'll let the, the, the podcast runner uh, introduce the show, I guess, now that I've talked for a while. Hey, so yeah, this is our first ever live alt comics podcast. Uh, I'm Mark Arsenault, uh, the host. It's a, it's a brand new thing. Subscribe to it on iTunes, what have you. Uh, it's just A-L-T-C-O-M-I-C-S, alt comics. Which, I uh, haven't had anyone like mention that they really get the reference, but I'm, I'm sure they kind of know what it's all about. Alt comics said something. But we're here with Steve Laffler, and we're going to take a look back on his, what, 35-odd year career in comics? Yeah, I guess my first comic book came out in 1981 called Mean Cat. Uh, so that's what? That's 36 years ago. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've been in this, uh, this business, this trade for a while at this point. I put out, uh, I don't know upwards of 60 comic magazines and I guess maybe closing in on maybe 10 graphic novels, give or take, give or take a few videos here and there. Okay. I, I didn't have a mean cat slide, I'm sorry about that, but we've got, we've got a little bit of Dog Boy. So how, how long right. have you been working before you came to Dog Boy? Well, Dog Boy, uh, the first issue was published in March of 1983, Dog Boy number one, the special shoe issue on Cathead Comics. But the character had been kicking around for a while. I had been doing a series called Guts, uh, Dog Boy, first Dog Boy story appeared in Guts number three in the summer of 2002. It was my first uh, 
magazine picked up for distribution by like Last Gas and Capital City and maybe I forget who else. But um, Dogboy himself apparently first appeared in March of 1980 on a poster I did for a rock and roll band. Uh, the, the band was called Martian Highway and uh, my friend Carl was the guitar playlist and singer. We did this giant, uh, well not giant, but an 1117 poster on the black paper and silver ink. Yes, it was supposed to look like an enormous hit of water acid, and it did. But uh, years, years later, I, I was looking at that poster, and uh, I saw that I drew Dog Boy in the corner, fully formed. And uh, so then, the, you know, the archetype was obviously in me, waiting to come out, because it wasn't until two years later that I started drawing comics with that character. So where were you living at when you were doing this? I was living in Eugene, Oregon. Yeah, I graduated from uh, UMass Amherst at the end of 1979. And uh, uh, let's see, summer 1980, I got out to Eugene, Oregon. I started drawing and publishing comics. I just, uh, I'm like, well, what am I going to do? I mean, I'm going to draw and publish comics. And so I started. Uh, I had had a daily strip at the Massachusetts Daily Collegian. I got spoiled by having no stroking and from an editor, I mean, they collect my spelling, my spelling, correct my spelling. And um, had an audience of 20,000 a day for four years, so I kind of got spoiled in college. And just, I knew it was going to be a little bit of more of a rough go to become a professional, but I was determined to do it. Do you remember your first paying job? Yeah, I sold in, in the fall of 1979, Rolling Stones did an odd Rolling Stone did a magazine called College Papers. Gilda Radner was on the cover of the first issue, and they bought a uh, page of comics for me for that uh, that first issue of that. And uh, so that was, I, I had met uh, a relative of J.M. Leonard uh, was at some spring music fest at uh, UMass the spring before it came out. She was walking around doing research. She walks up to me says, what do college students want to read? And I go, well, my comics, that's what they want to read. So I sent her a bunch of comics and she bought one. Nice. And so Dog Boy is, explain Dog Boy. Just describe Dog Boy. Okay, Dog Boy is like a, a young man, uh, a young man, you know, but he has an enormous golden retriever head. He's very fond of beer and LSD. Uh, so, <laughs> but he's otherwise human. Yeah, otherwise human. I think uh, the idea I had was to sit down and draw comics, kind of stream of consciousness, improvise at the moment, automatic writing, if you will. And uh, this was uh, where I was at at the time. I was, you know, I was still, I was a provisional professional. I mean, I was selling a certain amount of magazines, but you know, I was learning the trade. I was learning how to move from daily strips to comic strips, and I was trying to hone in on a way to write. And uh, I was not concerned about adhering to any notion of uh, a standard professional way of doing things. I wanted to open up my psyche and let, let stuff come through. And it worked quite well for, uh, I, the, the total run was 17 issues. It worked really well for probably half the run. It got a little stale for me after a while, so, uh, so I stopped doing it and had to, had to shift to something else. That was a good way for a young man to start the biz. What are we looking at now? So I was assembling a slideshow and I'm like, I don't know how I've been editing and publishing your work for what, five?
Warriors? Well, I think we I'm first talked about doing the Death in Oaxaca comic book series uh, around the end of 2013. So, okay. you know, four years here. I hadn't noticed before your car drawing. It's really nice. Well, there's a lot of it. I was no, like, I, 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 I love to draw this. cars. I mean, I love the, the I love the classic cars and muscle cars of the '60s. Uh, I mean, I'm not like a, a macho guy, but those cars I grew up in. You know, my dad was driving a, a '61 Galaxy 500 black with a white convertible top. There's not to love about that. With a 390 V8, you know, I was the, like the sporty executive dad. But um. One thing about drawing cars is uh, I would just draw them out of my head forever and they would be kind of like grabby looking. But uh, at a certain point, I, I was like, wait a minute, we can actually draw from life. We can draw from pictures and she, she, yes, we can trace cars if we need to. So once I started actually using reference for cars, the drawings got a lot better. And you also seem to like Volkswagen bugs. Yeah, all of the boats are down in Mexico. Yeah. I love, I love BW bikes. Doesn't everybody? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I yes. so. Um, so, did you go straight from doing uh, Dogway into doing uh, the, the next major work, or was well, it the next the next major work for me was Bughouse. I did not go straight from uh, Dogway to Bughouse because. As Dog Boy ended, I uh, I'd run out of gas with a kind of uh, stream of consciousness improvisational uh, technique, and I kind of was casting about for what to do. And I did uh, two issues of a comic book called Duck and Cover with uh, my pal, the writer and editor Stephen Beaupre, and I did two issues of a comic called Femme Noir, which I wrote and drew. And neither of those comic books were particularly good, although strangely enough they all sold decent enough to make a, a profit, a, a handy profit. Um, I think I promoted them really well. But uh, after those, uh, both and I decided we would publish Buzzard, the comics anthology. We started publishing that in 1990 in the spring. Yeah, there's number one with the uh, Cramps inspired uh, Elvis on the cover. Um, so that, our, our idea was, if you put a comic magazine or anthology out on a regular basis, it's likely to do better in the so-called direct market because the retailers, even the distributors, will get used to seeing the title on a regular basis. You know, at every level, fan level, artist level, people will respond to it and embrace it, which, you know, it happened to a certain degree, but to a certain degree, but the market wasn't particularly strong at the start of the 1990s or been uh, a number of boom and bust cycles. So, Buzzard started out as a break-even magazine and kind of <laughs> went, went down from there uh, business-wise. But in terms of uh, putting out a solid anthology, uh, we both printed and I edited, edited the magazine together at first. And then, uh, as I was doing a lot of artwork and you know production art, he took over the editing. We had a 20-issue run, 1990 through 1998. I feel that he, he put together a great magazine. It's, it stands out as one of the really lively uh, uh, series of the 90s. And uh, we're, we're, we're quite proud of it. 
Um, but by the time we got to issue number seven or eight, I started I hit on the idea of bug house. It formulated in my mind. And uh, so I, I, I took that and ran with it for, for a goodly, good number of years after there. It produced 400 pages of, uh, of bug house from 93 uh, now. So just, just to clarify, bug house is a bunch of people with bug heads that are otherwise human. You have, uh, the premise is you have a bunch of human beings with different insect heads. You have a band, uh, a jazz band named Bug House. Some of these bugs are jazz musicians. Some of the bugs are addicted to a substance called bug juice, which is a stand-in for any addictive substance you can think of. And uh, there are dual, dual story arcs one being, uh, can this band uh, take swing into bebop and uh, make it in the music biz? The other art is half the band is addicted to bug juice. Can they rise above their own uh, bad habits and survive and thrive, or will it, or will it do them in? So you have two two fairly dramatic story arcs. Plus, you know, it's an ensemble piece. I, I thought of it as having about eight major characters. You, know, you have the people in the band, uh, their families, their, their sweethearts. And uh, for me, the, the real treat was to write an ensemble piece, a character-driven piece. I wanted to have distinct personalities engaging with each other. I thought their personalities develop through dialogue. Um, and also, uh, uh, my partner, Serena, uh, I Serena. <laughs> we were um, we were both writing then a lot, and uh, we talked a lot about fiction, uh, about writing, about uh, cutting down on unnecessary qualifiers was a big subject of discussion. And uh, so, as we were both attacking the, the process of problems of creating fiction. Um, I felt like I, I really learned to, to write, which we kind of were, were both attempting to do just that. So it's really helped me a lot with writing. <clears throat> which was kind of a, you know, after just taking it off the top of my head for mostly good, but some like not so great effect for years, it was great to, to mature as a writer with Bughouse. So you were scripting these in advance? Tell yeah, yeah, I would, I would, I would indeed. I, I, I write the script, but uh, you know, there's always room for changes, and because I, I was so comfortable with improvisation, uh, you know, stuff would get rearranged wholesale all the time. But uh, you know, I found uh, working with the script and planning uh, was necessary. You know, for me to survive and, and thrive and improve as an artist, it was, it was, I was long past due time to embrace the, some of these writerly disciplines, but uh, I'm glad I, you know, I did it my way. Means Frank Sinatra and Sid Vicious. Right on. So do you, do you, uh, did you do thumbnails or rough layouts, or do you just I draw or No, I just, or? I go straight to pencil. I mean, the script, I, I'd scribble some thumbnails in the script. Uh, I wouldn't even give much thought. Some things I wanted to just make a, a little composition or even a little drawing, but I generally, I, I would do the pencils uh, straight off the top of my head. Um, every once in a while these days, uh, I seem to be, when I write a script, like for Death in Oaxaca, I'm writing, I'm, I'm drawing more and more as I write the script for Death in Oaxaca, and I find myself uh, 
Some of these drawings in the script I like so much, I just blow them up and ink them and throw them in the book. And then you can tell which ones which ones they are because they, they're, they're really loopy looking. But, you know, someone's forearm will be like, you know, two times as long as it's supposed to be, but that, that never stops me. We're scrolling down through something called cat suit. So we've gone from uh, dog-headed people to insect-headed people to sort of kind of superhero people. They're, they're masked. Yeah, the idea was uh, I when I was doing Bug House, I did six issues and two graphic novels myself. Then I started doing them with Top Shelf. And uh, we made a two-book deal, and after we did uh, two Buckhouse graphic novels, uh, one of the guys, Brett, said, let's do another. I said, yeah, I'd like to do that. So I did a third one, and then, you know, the story cycled through. Uh, each character, you know, after the, the main thrust of the story, as I described, the twin arcs of uh, addiction and ambition in the first part of the story was 200 pages, and then um, the last part of the story was focused on a character named Dennis, who is the new piano player after Slim, the first piano player, dies. Uh, so the story was done. I mean, I was out of uh, the kind of like potent intent that you need to successfully get through a, a long narrative. So I was looking around for something else to do, and I got the idea for Katsu. It's kind of, kind of equates the superhero mythos with uh, with the idea of uh, transgender in a way, which I found pretty funny because at the time I, I, I was enamored of the idea that uh, it would annoy some superhero fans. <laughs> it, it does work as a, as a kind of satire uh, on that thing in, in a very weird way, I think. Well, uh, the story, yeah, I don't know, I haven't, I haven't looked closely at that one in a while. I will say that uh, I really liked it. I liked the drawing in it. Uh, you know, I'm drawing all human characters. Uh, I mean, there are human characters in Dogville too, but I'm drawing all human characters. It's also, it's a 50-page story that, that, that works for me. Um, you know, that was kind of a, an interesting length of a piece to write. Sort of not, not even quite a novella. It's more just like a, a longish comedy story. And, you know, I like it. It's a, it's a nice piece. Some, someday, someday maybe do a print version. You know, we'll see. Okay. Whatever. So I'm going to bring us straight south. Now, you've been living where during all these phases we've talked about? Well, you know, it opened from, uh, from the mid-'80s until 2005. I lived in Oakland. And uh, 2005, uh, uh, Serena and I, we took our family to Portland, Oregon, where we just we got a place up there. We figured we're going to be here for a good long while and just get settled in. But after two years, we uh, we, we have a, a sense of adventure and a love of Mexico and Latin America, the culture, the food, the people, the lay of the land, the language, everything. We just we kind of got the wild hair and just decided to try Oaxaca for a year. Stayed for nine years, and uh, I found this little thing on the web, some sort of diary comic. Yeah, let's see. Just as I was putting out El Bocho, 
was the first uh, piece I did uh, that I really drew a long piece down to Mexico. El Bojo is a, uh, it's like a 90, 100 page graphic novel, came out in the summer of 2010. And this was part of the, this, this little story is part of the promotion for El Bojo. Uh, I did this page for a podcast by a writer named Ben Tanzer, and uh, it's called This Zine Will Save Your Life. I think that's what it's called. Anyway, uh, he was doing, no, it wasn't a podcast. I guess it was just a blog. Anyway, I did this for, it's a, it's a blog and a podcast now. Anyway, I did this for the, uh, the blog. This, this blog will save your life, or this zine will save your life. I forget what it's called. But uh, it was cool because um, he, has a, he has a nice literary audience there in the Chicago area where he, he works. And also, uh, the, the, uh, the piece introduces El Bojo, but it also introduces uh, the song. Um, I can't remember which song. This, we put the song, a link to the song on his podcast. It was either uh, Ballad of the Bug or Jack Black song. But I, yeah, when, that's another thing I started doing in, uh, in Oaxaca was uh, just all of a sudden I wanted to be a musician because of some people I met and friends I made down there and I started writing songs too and uh, kind of fell down the rabbit hole with it and had a lot of fun with it. Now, did you have any previous musical experience or training? Yeah, sure. I, uh, <laughs> I was a, I took trumpet for the three years prior to getting braces and immediately stopped playing trumpet as soon as I had braces for obvious reasons. It hurt a lot. But, uh, you know, I could read music and I could, I could like sing, I could look at music and sing the note reliably uh, back then. Uh, probably when I was in my early 20s, I, I picked up a few guitar licks from friends who were guitar players. You know, they just showed me a couple of super basic things. You know, and it was enough to be able to pick up a guitar and have fun, but I never I literally had never stood up and played with people. Um, then when we got to Oaxaca, uh, I met a couple, Todd and Sylvia, uh, uh, he, he being an expat, Sylvia of Oaxacan. They were a couple, they were selling real estate. Uh, so they're showing us houses. Within within 10 minutes of meeting me, Todd goes, so you're a guitar player? And I'm like, excuse me? And he's like, well, you're gonna come out on Thursday nights and play with us. And I'm like, like, okay, I could do that. And uh, what he had in mind was this um, this Thursday night jam, mostly of expats, and uh, 10 miles out in the, the campo in the countryside near Oaxaca, the village of San Pablo Etla. These guys call themselves the Bodega Boys. We get together and run through everything from bluegrass, rock and roll, pop songs. You know, you have a lot of the what I call the hippie canon, which is Dylan, Dead, and the band songs. Uh, I, I love those songs, but you get bored of playing them, to be quite honest. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't want to play the way ever again. <laughs> but um, anyway, still, the, a lot of good tunes in truth. But the, the thing of standing up and playing music with a bunch of people turns out to be an insane amount of fun. And uh, Tony, our host, also uh, was a distiller craft mezcal, that is to say, distilled, distilled agave. The mezcal still was about uh, 50 meters from where we played by his bodega, thus the bodega boys. 
So the thing about going out and playing in the country with our fresh mezcal under the moon was a fairly seductive prospect. So I really went for it. You know, I am now a uh, serviceable rhythm guitar player. Uh, I am by no means a great guitar player, but I, I definitely can, uh, you know, I can swing a little bit and have fun with it, that's for sure. <laughs> okay, so at some point uh, after you came down off the mezcal uh, and the guitar playing, you started your current comic book project. Yes. Uh, yeah, I had a notion about five years ago that I was going to do a story about when I was a 12-year-old with, with a mini bike, which is like this kind of massive metal tube from a lawnmower engine uh, bolted to it, you know, very dangerous and fun item for a 12-year-old. And I started penciling it. I penciled 12 or 17 pages, and I realized that I had to do this story about Oaxaca. And um, what was kind of like in my gut that was bothering me was I had, I had passed my 50th birthday and I just felt very mortal and, uh, you know, decided to process it by making art about it. Sort of like, you know, one of the, one of the reasons I did Bug House was because I had become uh, a serious consumer of beer and I wanted to explain to myself through comics how to not drink a ton of beer all the time. So I succeeded in that. So I think uh, doing Death in Oaxaca, I wanted to explain to myself through comics how to not be incredibly uh, morbid and down about the fact that I'm mortal. <laughs> and uh, I, I think I succeeded, you know. I still know that you know, we're, we're permanent, but uh, making art about this is a great way to deal with just about anything that's bugging me. Okay, so Death in Oaxaca as the series has this, been, and maybe something else in the book. Let's set this up. What's what's going on? Well, this panel here. Let's see. This might be the first page of the first issue. I think it is. I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, and this this gives you uh, a perfect view of what we love about Oaxaca, and that this would be sort of like going to the Monday. That was a few blocks from our house. Uh, and one thing I wanted to do in the book, as well as dealing with you know these like emotions and stuff, was to show what daily life, the, the, the small moments of daily life in Oaxaca, are worth celebrating. Uh, you know, it's just eating a fresh mamela is as good as anything you do in your whole life. And so, you know, I wanted to celebrate that. I have to say what a mamela is. It's like a Okay, so imagine a street vendor. Uh, she has a, uh, she's an indigenous woman. She has this clay comal, which is this sort of like flat disc on top of a little metal uh, brazier with wood or coals in it. And it's, a, it's a hot stove top. She has fresh masa, fresh corn masa. And so she's cooking fresh, these really beautiful, thick, fresh tortillas uh, on the spot. And then she puts on whatever your favorite topping is, be it uh, beans and string cheese, or uh, could be uh, flavored chicken called tinga, or it could be uh, mushrooms, also known as angos, or papas uh, rajas, potatoes and uh, peppers. And then, you know, you get just incredibly made fresh salsas on top of this. This whole breakfast is gonna cost you uh, 
I don't know, you, know, you can stuff yourself and you spend what amounts to $2. For a drink, you get tejate, a, a beverage made from maize and cacao, and there's a, there's a tree, somehow the flowers from that tree become part of the, the tejate. And I mean, it's just something we don't have up here, but it's, it's sublime. I mean, you can have uh, tejate and you know, mamelas, like an open-faced taco, basically, for breakfast. And maybe you've spent a total of $3 with stuff full of, basically, the simple and delicious food, like the best food on earth. I mean, uh, so it's pretty sweet to live in Oaxaca. Well, here's this panel that shows another one of the pleasures. This, this is based on our visits to a place called San Agustinio, which is on the coast of Oaxaca. I shouldn't be mentioning it, something that's going to be a podcast. I don't want too many people to know about San Agustinio <laughs> because it's this great, uh, somewhat unspoiled uh, beach town where, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be there making coffee just as the sun's coming up, and a fisherman will just walk up the beach with a big plastic bucket. They'll show me a piece of tuna that's just caught. I'll be like, do you want to buy this? So you buy it for like some ridiculously low price, and then you know, Mamo, the guy who's running the cabana, says, "Hey, I'll marry that for you." And then that night, you have like this insanely delicious fresh tuna right on the beach in beautiful Oaxaca. So it's hard to beat. So myself and my family, we just uh, you know, we really fell in love with the place and uh, embraced just about all it has to offer, which is a lot. Uh, just that's really arguably second only to Mexico City as a, as a cultural mecca in Mexico, just uh, the visual arts, painting, dance, the cuisine, um, the open air markets, uh, all just the, the crafts. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible place. So we loved it, we stayed, and uh, here I'm offering this book about it. Now it's interesting too, Peter Cooper, of course, lived there for two years. Uh, the great Peter Cooper, he put out a couple books, one at Oaxaca Sketchbook, another a graphic novel called Ruins. So now, uh, once, once uh, uh, Death Plays of Being Harmonica comes out, there will be two major graphic novels set in Oaxaca. <laughs> so, getting back into the, the comics during Death in Oaxaca, we still going through a kind of superhero thing in here, except it's not quite that. No, it's, I, I don't think of it, I know she looks like a superhero, but I think she's of it. She's a luchadora. Yeah, she's a luchadora. Uh, another one, and you know, she's a wannabe luchadora, uh, you know, talk about trying to embrace uh, all that Oaxaca has to offer. And I, I tell you, for comedy, so she's, she's a wannabe luchadora, but she always gets into trouble every time she tries to luchadora. Uh, <laughs> um, so that's one of the other great things about uh, Oaxaca and all of Mexico. It's like, um, I mean, we've seen luchadora, we've seen lucha libre matches in, in like malls, and parking lots, you know, all kinds of different settings. And uh, they're just, you know, they're amazing uh, entertainment, feats of incredible athleticism, even though it's all planned and whatnot, up to a point. Uh, comedy. Wait, are you, are you saying there's, there's the wrestling that's not real? I don't know, it's all real. 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 
And know that you're not moving on. Max, what do they call the two the two teams? Oh yeah, Technicos and uh, Burritos. Burritos. Yeah, the Technicos are the superheroes and the Burritos are the bad guys. So it's always the Technicos versus the Burritos. And uh, it's theater. Uh, I mean, it's just so much fun. I feel, I mean, the athleticism is amazing. And, and they do it like, you know, they'll match up the young man, they'll match up the young woman, but they have, they, they go through the different like grades of wrestlers. And, you know, I mean, the, the young and strong people always go last. They'll, they'll, they'll warm up with these like guys that are they're my age, you know, and they have the big pot bellies, but they still, they still got it. They, they know the moves and they, they embrace it. It's like an art form that they just, just never want to give up. And I mean, it's so much fun. I mean, one, one time, uh, I forget how this happened, but we were, we were seeing a uh, Lucha Libre Max in a ma uh, match in a shopping mall. And uh, one of the guys like, got mad at uh, Max, my son, and he called him, tried to call him into the ring, and Max wouldn't go. <laughs> nice. So back in the fictional Oaxaca, we also have a, what is that? Is, is that a, yeah, it kind of shifts as the, the story goes on and grows. But basically, you have a, you know, one of the indigenous groups is the Satopecs. So I think of this character, uh, Eduardo, he's like a 2,000 year old Zapotec vampire. Uh, but he's, you know, so in vampire lore, where do vampires come from? They come from wherever the writer decides they come from. In my case, I decided that. The reason Eduardo became a vampire is because a bunch of extraterrestrials landed at the ruins of Mipa in Oaxaca and they needed an agent on Earth and they had to figure out a way to make him immortal, so they turned him into a vampire. I don't provide any of the details on this because this is, I, I firmly believe that it's, there's a certain point where you have to let the reader fill in the spaces in the narrative. And so I'm providing a lot, but people can make up their own stories about who, what, how, why, and where of Eduardo. But uh, the joke with Eduardo is that he's a very dignified, uh, humble, and polite guy. So uh, he doesn't like to drink human blood, so he raises chickens and drinks their blood instead. Okay, so you sing, you play guitar, you write, you draw, and you also run. Yes. Seriously run. run. Have yeah. You definitely run. Yeah, it's like I'm, I'm like a serial dilettante. With all these things, I I, uh, I I am indeed a professional cartoonist, but you know the rest of it lines up behind that. Uh, yeah, I mean I've been running seriously, I guess, more or less uh, since I was 15. You know, ran track in high school and college, and you know uh, enjoyed it a lot. Uh, still do it. You know, it's it's uh, mental health as well as physical. What was the last race you were in? Last Sunday in Alameda, I was 16th in a 10K out uh, of 308 people. I won't, I won't tell you my time because I, I was coming off a cold, so I ran a little slower than I wanted to. <laughs> this is the most recent, I think, pencil page, is that right? No, that's, that's the first page of the, the oh. final chapter. This is the first page, uh, kind of, Try to like, set the stage. Um, our house in Oaxaca has a spiral staircase in the back, 
it, it doesn't look anything so glorious as this, but I wanted to, uh, I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, put the spiral staircase in there and create a mandala effect in it with it. Uh, that was a recurring visual motif in Dog Boy. Dog Boy was always running through these like uh, sort of serrated caves, you know, trying to burst through to another reality and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I mean, that's what that's what mandala, like Tibetan mandala art, was for the, you know, they had a practical use. I think meditators were supposed to stare at those and fall into them, basically. So there's a lot of that in my comics. What's that? That is. Uh, this is a painting from life made in Parque Llano in the center of Oaxaca. That is a woman making mamelas. And I don't know her name, but you know, she's one of my favorite uh, mamela makers. And uh, she's very friendly. She likes Max and Jenny, my kids. And she makes a bean mamela. Yeah, a lot of these, they're just scenes of food vendors around Oaxaca. These are some. Uh, this was, we were there two months ago, we went back for a visit. These were a couple flamenco guitarists that Serena and I saw at the La Hikra. These, these were these like super just great players, these young guys. And, uh, they, they were pretty cocky, but they had reason to be cocky. But I love La Hikra. Uh, my own, the first iteration of my own band, Radio Insecto, played a couple of, actually the first gig we played at uh, La Hikra was fantastic, one of the best shows ever we had. Uh, this British virtuoso playing lead guitar with us, uh, Matt Cow, uh, just fantastic. The second, <laughs> the second day we played it, uh, by Igra, uh, my bass player, the late great Bill Stair, got mad that the audience was talking, and he left the stage in the middle of the show. Uh, I love the guy, but he shouldn't have done that. <laughs> that's not a painting, there. No, that's just a photo. That's a photo uh, taken in a. Uh, a Oaxacan restaurant. Um, oh, the name, I can't remember the name just now. But uh, yeah, it's just, uh, this was uh, right around uh, Dia de Muertos. So this was their, their decoration, one of their decorations in front of the restaurant. This is right off near the village of San Martin Tilcahete, where the, the whole village specializes in the craft of uh, alabrijes, also known as wood mammals. It's just one of the nice murals. And, Oaxaca, not quite the centro of town, uh, the neighborhood called uh, Colonia Alabaco, which is uh, just a beautiful you know, kind of colonial neighborhood. And uh, yeah, that's, that caught my eye, so I need to take a picture. So uh, I, I know nothing about this, but is, do you know much about the history of the surrealist mural uh, making in that part of? Basically, I don't, I don't well, know where it extends. I'm, I'm no expert. I'm no expert. Rather than, uh, I wouldn't say so much surreal, although there is surrealism in a lot of Mexican art. But, uh, you know, I, I have a, a passing knowledge of the work of, of course, uh, Frida Kahlo and, uh, um, you know, Diego Rivera, uh, the other major muralist of their era being uh, uh, Roscoe. Roscoe, and uh, also uh, David Siqueiros. Um, I mean, you know, they, their, their thing was social realism. Uh, they were political artists as well as, you know, fine artists. And Frida touched on the surreal quite a bit, but uh, especially Siqueiros, I think of him as uh, uh, just a, you know, he's a, an 
armed socialist and a uh, guy packed a pistol and would get into gun fights. And I mean, you know, but I mean, you see, you go to the, uh, what do they call it, the Palacio de Bellas Artes in Mexico City. They don't always have, they, I guess they rotate their stuff. But when, the first time we went there, I saw some of these giants and pianos and murals. And I thought that they just, they were profound. They were so beautiful. They were about, you know, the moment of the conquest and the, the pain of the indigenous Mexicans. Uh, I think it was a, a giant, giant uh, painting of Cuauhtémoc, uh, the last emperor after they, they killed uh, Montezuma. But, um, you know, I love seeing the Diegos in there, the Diego Rivera's, but it was Siqueiros that moved me. It just blew me away with his, his technique, his just, just, I mean, there was a huge painting with one giant image and the painting, the, the paint itself was like an inch thick over this massive canvas. It just, it just like floored me, it floored me. Um, now this is surrealism. You're, uh, you, this is a photo from the village of, is it Casareno? Uh, taken on the night of November 1st, which Dia de Muertos goes for three days. And the night of November 1st, is the um, is the night of the comparsas, which is like the parades. You have like sort of parades of the locals, where there's a lot of costumes, there's a lot of dancing. They'll march on route through the town or neighborhood. There will be a band, and uh, it's it's one of the one of the main celebratory parts of Dia de Muertos. And Nazareno is known for amazing costumes. Uh, this, this photo was taken in the city of Huchitan, which very sadly was hardly hit near the 8.1 earthquake uh, a couple weeks ago. But uh, this is a Moshe, uh, you know, a uh, man who presents as a woman in uh, Huchitan. The Moshe's are a tradition in Oaxaca, and the city of Huchitan especially. Uh, their tradition goes back thousands of years. Many families are, uh, you know, they'll have someone who is Moshe in their family. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's basically men who, who live as women and they, they have traditional sort of like roles and, and social functions that they, they serve. And they're very accepted in that culture and have been uh, for, for thousands of years. Uh, they have celebrations called velas, Uche velas, uh, which are big in Uchi time, you know, but I mean, the, almost the whole town turns out for these things and have an amazing lineup of bands. Many bouches, both in traditional uh, dress like this, also, you know, you have plenty of cocktail dresses too. I do believe I showed up to uh, one in a cocktail dress uh, on this occasion. <laughs> That's a painting of a dog. That, that is a painting of a dog. I, I can verify that. And he has a dog body. Yeah, this is a, a friend of mine, uh, one of those beloved retrievers that passed away. I painted it for him. Uh, I love this painting because I love retrievers, and also I like it because even though he's white instead of orange, he looks a lot like Dog Boy. <laughs> yeah, well, there's two of my favorite things, the cave motif and the bocho. The Volkswagen, they call it the bocho in Mexico. Oh, I like this one. What's going on here? That's, that's you, right? Did you well, I did indeed. This oh, is, good. well, we have a, uh, we have a tradition in our family. We love Mother's Day, but uh, we're working in, 
in a conversation between my wife, Serena, and J.R. Williams, the great cartoonist, and I a few years ago, we decided that Mother's Day would henceforth be known as Mothra's Day. And so this was uh, my 2017 Mothra's Day card to my sweetheart. <laughs> uh, that's Reed Richards, Mr. Trans-tastic. <laughs> Oh, this is a recent piece. Yeah, this was a T-shirt I did. Uh, I, I, for 20 years plus, I've done. I've printed shirts. You know, I own a shirt printing business still. Printed shirts for Hate Ashbury T-shirts, owned by uh, Paul Martai at the corner of Hate Ashbury. He sells to the tourist trade, so you know a lot of, a lot of hippie music shirts, Grateful Dead theme type stuff. Uh, anyway, this was the 50th anniversary of the Summer of Love this year. So almost a year ago, Paul suggested to me that I do a Summer of Love design. So I came up with this, and uh, it really worked out. We sold, between online and mostly out of the store, we sold about 750 of these, which is pretty good for a t-shirt. I'll take it. And you've done a little bit of uh, political cartooning. Uh, Steve has a Patreon that you can support. Um, yeah, if you're on Patreon, just put in my name and it'll come up. But uh, yeah, I was like, as many of us are, just. Uh, flabbergasted to have this moron Trump for a president. I uh, can't say bad enough bad things about him, of course. So uh, when I started my Patreon, uh, the first few months, it was like a lot of political cartoons. Um, and I'll probably, this was the one that I really had fun with, you know, like the game of life, you know, played it a lot as a kid, so I recast it with uh, Trump and his cronies here, including his daughter, Bannon, I threw Paul Ryan in there since he's such a stinker. Put Putin in the center of it. Uh, new rules for the game of life. Uh, I, I've recently been filling my Patreon page with uh, the pencils to my upcoming, uh, you know, uh, comics because uh, it's sort of a, a time thing. Uh, Got to get this book done, so a little bit less political contribution does now. Oh, that. <laughs> What's that? That was a commercial job. That's, that's what happens. You know, guys like okay. to do illustration jobs. This was an illustration job for uh, a, uh, a kid who uh, wants to save the world with his anarchist ideals. Um, we need more people like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's just a. Oh, that, you know what? This was actually a commercial piece. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, I have a longtime client, almost 20 years, uh, who does summer science camp for, camps for kids. And uh, so I've done all, I've drawn all kinds of uh, plants and animals for her. And uh, a lot of realistic stuff, but sometimes cartoony stuff. So I think this was a milk bug. And uh, I don't know, I just, that, that one just popped out. I just love that drawing. Uh, it's a more fun bug on a skateboard drawing. It's the one I picked to wrap this up with. Um, okay. I think we still have a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Um, so, have you thought at all about next big project, or are you still just in the uh, world of? No, no. I'm, you know, right now the, the current thing is uh, the, uh, the Oaxaca comic. My script. I, I'm like I've now penciled uh, around 25 pages of the last part. The script. Looking over the script. I can wrap it up in just a few pages. Um, I suspect there might be more of this story 
that has to come out. So I'll find that out. But um, the, the current thing is, uh, you know, just the, the determination to finish this project. And uh, that's like a, a strong drive right now. So we'll just, you know, I'll, I'll keep my focus on that. And in the meanwhile, and then, uh, you know, some other idea will come up in due course. You know, uh, in my life and in the life of my family, we've had a lot of change by leaving Oaxaca. So uh, I know that uh, this, the changes in our lives will want to come out in uh, sequential art at some time, and I'll be ready for it. <laughs> right on. Well, thank you very much, Steve Laffler. It has been a, a thrill to talk to you, and you're reachable on the web, otherwise, at stevelaffler.com. Yeah, stevelaffler.com is okay. truth, truth of it. It's a blog, but that's that's the address of it. But uh, yeah, I, I put everything, I'm, you know, current information about what I'm up to in there, and you know, links to, links to ordering things like Death in Oaxaca from Alternative Comics. There are three issues that you can go to what is it? Is it indie? Indieworld.com, indie with a Y, I-N-D-Y-W-O-R-L-D.com. That'll tell you everywhere you can get everything. Yeah. Um, exactly. Or you can go to wowcool.com, where the shop portion of all that yeah, is. Yeah, so between those two websites, you can find out what I'm up to and even buy it. <laughs> Indeed. And we have many more books there than we managed to remember to bring to the show. That's true. Yes. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Uh, thank you, Steve. Thank you, Mark. If anyone wants to ask me anything or ask something, they want signed or anything. How do you pronounce Hoochie Town? Hoochie Town. It's spelled J U C H I T A N. Actually, it's Hoochie Town. Hoochie Is that where the origin of Boston accent on You think that's where the origin of Hoochie came from? Hoochie Town? Uh, I doubt that. I doubt that. They sound very similar. I just wonder what the origin was. Is there waiting? Is there waiting for that association?